It is my honor and privilege to meditate on Psalm 8 today with you. And so if you'll go ahead and grab your swords of the Spirit and turn to Psalm 8 so we can read it together. Psalm 8 is one of five nature psalms in the Psalter. Uh, These are psalms that uh, praise God through the lens of His creation. They always extol God as the all-powerful Creator who also pays attention to every single detail of caring for His creation, especially us. And so Psalm 8 is unique in that King David wrote it entirely to God. This is a beautiful prayer. And uh, we find Psalm 8 in Book 1 of the Psalter, uh, the dominant theme of which is God's power in creation, which we will definitely see today along with a theme of sin and redemption. And so let's read together Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, which is a musical term, uh, most likely, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Well, let me ask you a penetrating question Do you matter? Do you matter? Does any of us on this earth really matter? Well, this is a question that has burned deep in my heart ever since I can remember. And it's the question that is at the heart of Psalm 8. Psalm 8, for me personally, is probably one of the toughest passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. And that's because the narrative that has run through my head my whole life stands in contradiction to what Psalm 8 says. The narrative that has run through my head my whole life is is really that I I don't matter all that much. There have been times in my life when I have felt truly invisible, inconsequential, just sort of like a mirage. It seems like the most significant part of my life is my failures and my sins and my mistakes. I know I'm not alone in this. I know that some of us here today wonder, do I really matter? What's the point of my life? Why am I even here? 
I mean, you believe in God, but, but God seems far away. He seems aloof. He seems like he keeps his distance. And so you cry to God with the author of Psalm 77. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises in an end for all time? And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the sad truth is, is that many times in my life, I've been kind of stuck in that mode. And you know what? It's just plain sin. John just talked a minute ago about taking away from the salvation of God. And that's what that attitude in me is doing. I'm not really receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm not affirming his work in me as a reality in spite of all the evidence that ought to convince me that his love is real and that I really do matter. But you know what? Not all of us think this way. You might believe that the world revolves around you. You've never felt invisible. Maybe you don't even marvel that God loves you. You're thinking, well, of course he does. Of course he loves me. Of course, that kind of attitude is just pride, isn't it? And pride forgets grace. Pride depends on self rather than God. Pride says, hey, look at me, rather than look at my great God. That's what Elihu rightly saw in Job. Job was marveling that calamity had fallen on him because he, after all, was a righteous man. And so Elihu rightly kind of jabs his finger at Job and he says, Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he that is God finds occasions against me and he counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. And so then Elihu says, Brother Job, behold, In this, you are not right. In other words, Job is just full of pride, so much so that he can't even see his own sin. But you know, there's even another way uh, of thinking about whether we matter, or rather, this is a way of not thinking about it. This is a sense of complacency, of being neither here nor there, of neglecting to wonder whether you matter, of neglecting to consider why God made you, neglecting to think about your significance to God. And you know what that does? It makes you indifferent to God. It makes you indifferent to living for God. And so life for you may have become more and more about you, about your pleasures and your comforts. And as a result of this, you may have forgotten what Paul has said in Romans chapter 6. So you, all also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that there's no in-between for a Christian. There is either death which means no Christ, or life, which means being alive to Jesus Christ and living with intention and purpose. But you know, no matter uh, who we are or which of these tendencies we might have, Psalm 8 is for you because God is telling you that you do indeed matter a great deal to him. But the key to it all is to understand that our worth comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
but even if very happily you don't fall into any of these broad categories and you appropriately understand your significance in God's eyes, Psalm 8 is still for you because, yes, you do indeed matter a great deal to God. So stay the course and keep walking in a manner worthy of your calling, just as Ephesians 4.1 exhorts us to do. But the bottom line is that Psalm 8 is pointing out a paradox concerning mankind. Simultaneously, at the very same time, we are both immeasurably small and immensely great. We're both insignificant and greatly significant. Psalm 8 asks, do you matter? And Psalm 8 gives a resounding answer, yes. Yes, you matter a great deal to God. That's the big idea of Psalm 8. You matter a great deal to God. And that is a reality that should fundamentally change our perspective on life, no matter who we are. And so as we dig in, let's notice that there are three basic components to this psalm. The first is God's majesty, and we see this in verses 1 and 9. The second is our insignificance. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. And then finally in verses 5 and 8, we see our God-given greatness as God shows us the role that he has set out for us. And so since the majesty of God begins and ends the psalm, let's get our, mi our minds around this idea of what the majesty of, of God is all about. And then we'll be able to explore this paradox of mankind, our smallness, and our greatness. So first of all, God's majesty. Psalm 8 begins and ends with these words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. King David here is invoking the name of Yahweh. This is represented in your Bibles with Lord spelled in all capitals. Yahweh is the divine name that God chose for himself when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus. The second Lord, uh, with just the capital L, means master. And so taken together, these two lords are a very formal and reverent, respectful prayer to God. You can envision, you can envision King David lying face down on the ground as he prays. He's not approaching God casually. And such a formal greeting is awfully appropriate on King David's part for many reasons, not the least of which he's about to extol the majesty of God. Now, our common, most common reference point for majesty, of course, is mountains. I remember when I saw Mount Denali in Alaska. This is a picture of it up on the screen, not one that I took. Uh, but this is the highest peak in North America. It stands more than 20,000 feet above sea level, and it's one of the tallest mountains in the world uh, from the perspective of its height from its base to its summit. It stands at 13,000 feet. That's how, that's how much it rises when you're standing there looking at it. And the day that I saw it, the, the, only the summit was visible through the clouds. It just peeked out through the clouds. And it was covered with snow. And so as, as my brother and I were looking up, and I mean, we were looking up at it. We were miles and miles away. But we were looking up at this thing, and we thought that it was the clouds. But then we realized that's the summit of the mountain. And so 
We, we were speechless. We truly couldn't believe our eyes. We felt as though we had seen real majesty for the very first time. But you know what? The majesty of God dwarfs the majesty of even mountains like Denali. The Hebrew word for majesty, adir, it goes beyond a visual grandeur. It speaks of one who is in the highest authority, a noble one, the most important one. This is the highest rank possible. And so it's not just that God appears majestic, but as verses 1 and 9 point out, it is God's name that is majestic. The word name here represents more than just what we call him, but it's also God's revelation of himself, Yahweh. It represents his perfect character and nature. The majestic name of God permeates the earth. It transcends the heavens. And this is why his name always kindles words of praise in our hearts and then those words come out from our lips as we just did in song when we praised his majestic name. And as we're going to see, our significance is rooted deeply in God's majestic name. And so while Mount Denali was majestic in appearance, the only thing that sets it apart from other mountains is the fact that it's tall. It's just a bunch of rocks, just like any other mountain. But God's majesty is rooted in his character and his nature. He is different. There is no God like him. His majesty dwarfs everything else. And that's why King David says in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. The Hebrew word for glory here is hod, and it carries the idea not only of majesty and splendor, but also of authority. God's glory, his majesty, his splendor, and his authority is not of this world. Listen to what Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6 say. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Who indeed, brothers and sisters, who is like our God? God towers above the whole universe and he has absolute authority over all of it because he created it. We all know Genesis 1-1 by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, right? And so as the creator, God looks far down on his creation because he rules over it. His name, his perfect character and nature saturates all of his creation, so much so that even the smallest, the weakest, the most helpless among us proclaim the power and might and authority of God. You see, the majesty of God reaches from the highest of heights to the depths of our souls. Psalm 8.2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You see, contrary to our expectations, God's power and strength is demonstrated through the weak and the helpless, not the strong and self-sufficient. 
there's something for us to chew on a little bit in this world, isn't it? This world that is so power-hungry, Christians included. But God's power is demonstrated through the weak and the helpless. God's power is demonstrated through sinners. The truly helpless depend on God, who has the power to lift them out of their humble estate. This is, this is exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, was talking about in her beautiful prayer in Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see, it is the humble who exalt God. It is the humble who for the wonderful things that he does. And brothers and sisters, it is the humble whom God exalts. And this is why Jesus quotes Psalm 8 in Matthew 21. You remember the story. This is after his triumphal entry. And as Matthew writes, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers in the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then he starts using God's temple for exactly what God intended it to be used for. He starts ministering to people and, and bringing glory to God, and he heals the lame and the blind. But the chief priests and the scribes are upset. They don't like the look of this, and they don't like the fact that the children are running around the temple crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And so Jesus answers them by quoting Psalm 8. He says, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. His point is that the pitfall of the proud is that they become ignorant of their need to praise God from the standpoint of humility. They're busy depending on themselves rather than on God. But the weak and the dispossessed of this world are the ones who are able to acknowledge the power of God. Since, after all, as Jesus told the Pharisees on another occasion, when a sinful woman lay at his feet and bathed the Lord's feet with her tears and with expensive ointment. In Luke chapter 7, Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, Jesus says, her sins are forgiven for she loved much, but he, who is, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And so her praise and the praise of the children at the temple in Jerusalem reveal that they're the ones who have the true perception of who Jesus is, not the proud, not the arrogant, not the people who think that they need to be forgiven just a little bit. Is that you today? Do you think God just needs to forgive you just a little bit? Jesus says, those who are forgiven much are able to see who he is. The proud are the enemies of God. 
These are the enemies of God who are silenced when the weak and the helpless praise God because of what he's done for them. Ultimately, as we learned in Psalm 1, ultimately the proud will be silenced forever. The way of the wicked will perish. You see, this is the majesty of God. His majesty is rooted in his name and in his holy character and nature and extends all the way from above the heavens to the depths of the sinner's heart. His majesty exalts those of us who are broken enough to bow before him. Only a sinner can truly grasp the majesty of God. And that's the rest, what the rest of Psalm 8 is about. The sinner recognizes the scale of the majesty of God. Only a sinner from his low place can recognize the infinite glory of God. And only a sinner can recognize God's intimate grace. And so let's move on to verses 3 and 4 where King David the sinner marvels at our insignificance compared to the scale of God's majesty and creation. He says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You know, our tendency is to look at the heavens and say, well, there's the majesty of God. But you know what? When we say that, we're actually lowballing the greatness of God. In reality, the heavens are just dwarfed by the majesty of God. He created all things, as David declares. He created all things with his fingers. Isn't that beautiful poetic imagery? Creation is the work of God's fingers. With those fingers, he set the moon and the stars into place. Now, obviously, God doesn't have fingers. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. But Psalm 8 is poetry, and the job of poetry is to help us to understand things that we might not otherwise understand. We all know that God created the heavens and the earth, as Genesis 1 declares, but Psalm 8 gives God's scale compared to his creation. Psalm 8 manages to help us to understand God, who has no physical dimensions, compared to his physical creation. And so what Psalm 8 is saying is that God is vast compared to the universe. So think about this with me. We know a whole lot more about the universe than King David did. He had an inkling that the universe is big, and I think that was just the Holy Spirit showing him that. But right now, we know a whole lot more things in a lot more, in a lot more detail. We know that the moon is about 238,000 miles away. We also know that there might be as many as 300 billion, with a B, 300 billion stars in our galaxy. And so to give you an idea of how many 300 billion is, the number of stars just in our galaxy, think about it like this. If you stacked 300 billion pennies, besides the fact you'd be pretty rich, if you stacked 300 billion pennies, each of which is only about six one-hundredths of an inch thick or so, or six-tenths, one or the other, 
your stack of pennies would be higher than the moon. So if you could stand on top of that stack somehow, you'd have the moon in the foreground while you look back at the earth. That's how high your stack of pennies would be. And so that's some idea of how many 300 billion is. That's how many stars there are in our galaxy. And so now consider this. The average distance between the stars is 30 trillion miles. 30 trillion miles. It takes light five years to travel that far. So are you beginning to grasp the size of our galaxy? Are you beginning to get your head around just a little bit the scale of God who set those stars into place with his fingers? But hang on a second. We've only been talking about our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. The latest estimates from research from the Hubble telescope is that there are as many as 100 billion galaxies. Now we're getting into some real numbers, right? The universe is a very, very big place, isn't it? And yet, as King David says, all of this, all of this is the work of God's fingers. In other words, the sum of God's character and creative power is so great that he didn't even break a sweat in forming such a vast universe. That's how big God is. And as Genesis tells us, God just spoke it into being. Brothers and sisters, that's what I call majesty. Amen. But the question that King David asks in verse 4 goes at the very heart of everything, doesn't it? In light of all of this, the vastness of the universe that God created, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? in relation to the incomprehensible size of the universe and the even larger scale of the majesty of God, do we even matter? Our planet and even our galaxy is just a tiny little speck in the vastness of space. So what does that make us? Well, the tiniest known particle is something called a quark. And it takes three quarks to make a proton. And you all know from science class that a proton is a part of an atom, a very small part of an atom. Compared to the vastness of space, I'm not even sure our entire galaxy would amount to a single quark. And furthermore, the word in Hebrew used for man in verse 4 focuses on our frailty and weakness, the mortality of humankind. We are tiny, 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 fragile creatures. How in the world can we be significant? Well, some say that we're not. Some of you remember Carl Sagan. He was a famous American scientist. He was a brilliant man who helped popularize science. He he died in 1996. He did a lot of good in that area. But you know what? He didn't know God. In fact, in his own words, he was an agnostic. An agnostic is somebody who says that God cannot be known. And so his conclusion, in looking up at the very same stars and moon that David saw, 
was that God is simply the sum of physical laws, that he's not a living God, and that as such, being the minuscule specks that we are, we have no significance beyond ourselves. He said this, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy, tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe where there are far more galaxies than people. But you know what? King David is coming at this question from the perspective of a God who is known because he has revealed himself through the majesty of his name and he is a God who has not lost us in a forgotten corner of the universe because God has never lost a single thing. King David is actually marveling when he asks God, why do you even spare a thought for people? The point is, is that we're puny and God is majestic on a scale that defies our ability to comprehend. This is a majesty that the size and the magnitude of the universe testifies to, but there is no way ever that it can fully portray the majesty of God. And so from our perspective, we're just tiny little puny specks of sin. And God has no reason at all to care about us. On the face of it, it almost seems like Carl Sagan was right and that we're just insignificant. But you know what King David is doing? He's deliberately creating this sense of despair in verse 4 so he can set us up for the breathtaking answer in verse 5 and following. He has laid out the majesty of God. He's cued us up by asking, do we really matter given how majestic you are, God? And so now it's time for the answer. It's time for us to fathom our God-given greatness. In verse 5 he says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor that's us it's remarkable because what this means is that we're the most important thing that God has ever created see here we are on this tiny blue planet, among billions of stars and planets, floating in the vastness of space, in at least one of a, of a billion galaxies. And God has chosen us to crown with glory and honor. The glory that he's crowning us with is a little different from the glory of verse 1. The glory that God has set above the heavens describes him, Chod in Hebrew, that's his splendor and his majesty and authority. But the glory that is our crown in verse 5 is kabod. And this means that God has bestowed on us the weight of importance. God has endowed us with a reputation, a status, a distinction. And the honor that he crowns us with means that God desires us and ranks us more than any other creature. God has given us dignity. And so as such, right now, we're just a little lower than the angels, but when Christ comes back for us and creates a new heaven and earth, we're going to rule over all creation, including the angels, 
with Christ on the throne as our head in solidarity and union with us as God's Son who became flesh and dwelt among us. But ever since the beginning, God commissioned mankind to be the rulers of his creation. Certainly because of our sin, we've failed at that just like we have at all things. But Christ is going to fulfill that commission at his second time uh, coming. But in our psalm, King David is drawing an echo from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30. He's reminding us of our importance. He's reminding us of our God-given greatness. In verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8, David writes, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see, the point is, is that God has given us significance. In fact, we're crowned with it. Our significance comes directly from God. We didn't earn it. We've done absolutely nothing but prove that we don't deserve it. We didn't demand it, and so God gave it to us. We don't deserve it, both because of our sin and because of our tiny little stature in God's creation. But the reality is, is that God has given man tremendous significance. We are made in the image of God. That is, God created us to be reflections of his majesty. And he created us to bear the responsibility of having dominion over his creation. And so that's why our sin is such a travesty, isn't it? Because whenever we sin, we sully, we sully the image of majesty. But after the return of Jesus Christ, he's going to make all things new and our sin will be no more. And we're going to rule in the new heaven and earth. And we're going to even rule over the angels under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Psalm 8, brothers and sisters. God's name is majestic. And his name saturates his whole creation and it even dwarfs it. The fact that creation is the work of God's fingers speaks both to the puniness of mankind and the vastness of God. But contrary to our expectations, not only does God care about us, but he's crowned us with dignity and rank and importance and reputation along with this divine responsibility to care for his creation. We matter a great deal to God. But as we consider what lesson to take home with us today. We find that there's even more here than meets the eye. We don't simply matter to God. You see, it's true that Christ is absolutely everything. He is the focal point of everything. Amen? But who did Christ come for? Who did Christ save? You and I are the focal point of his plan of redemption. 
Psalm 8 draws on the the creation story in Genesis. It points out our frailty and our smallness in creation, but also our God-given dignity and dominion over creation, our God-given greatness. And yet, because of our sin, we've corrupted the whole universe. And you know, when you think about it, that's really the only significant thing mankind has ever done on his own. And so the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. Elder Doug read it a few minutes ago. And he applies it to Christ in chapter 2. He's saying that Christ in solidarity and unity with with humankind, he's saying that Christ is the fulfillment of the reality that we have not yet seen. This reality that Psalm 8 speaks of, which is the subjugation of all creation to mankind. That's going to happen under Christ. But this is where God really demonstrates to us the value that he's given us, the value that he has endowed upon us. His son, our Lord Jesus Christ, came in the flesh for you and for me. Let that sink in. He didn't just come to save a group, although he did. He came to save his church. But he came to save you and me. Cat, he came to save you. Robin, he came to save you. Ernest, he came to save you. TJ, he came to save you. And he saved you by name. Knowing that your name represents all the things that you've ever done in your life, all of the things for which he came to save you, all of your sin. And yet God has endowed us with this tremendous value that our Lord Jesus Christ would come from heaven and dwell among us and die for us. Is there any significance that could be greater than that? You see, there's no creature in the world or in heaven or in all of the universe, even if it turns out there are space aliens, you know what? They can't say this either. There is no creature anywhere who can say that God has done this for them. Hebrews 2.9 lays it out. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God himself joined us in our frailty. He shared in our smallness in the scope of such a huge universe, a universe which he created. In becoming flesh to dwell among us, God is in unity with us. Without giving up being God, he willingly yielded some of his power and authority to take a much lower place right beside us. And he did it so he could die. 
He did it so that you and I could receive the grace of Yahweh, whose very name is majestic. You see, we are valuable to God because because of the price that he paid for us. And in that sense, we are absolutely priceless. The world wants us to think that we ought to measure greatness by how many points we've scored or whether we've got access to a microphone or, or a big following on social media. The world also wants us to believe that our lives really don't matter much anyway, that we're just another species of animal with no particular purpose. But our greatness as believers is measured by the majesty of God and the cost of the blood of our Lord. He gives us dignity and worth. He gives us life. And his blood, hallelujah, means that I'm not invisible. His blood means that I matter to God and therefore I matter in this life. His blood means that you should leave here today with praise in your hearts and these words coming from your lips. Look at what a great God I have because he has given me worth. His blood means that you are alive to God in Christ and that you are dead to sin and that you matter. His blood means that you must not be indifferent to him. And his blood means that you ought to keep walking in a manner worthy of your calling, to love your brothers and sisters in the unity of Christ, to proclaim his gospel to a lost world, whether it be on a stage or over a cup of coffee or in a kind word to a soul who's been forgotten by the world. That's greatness, brothers and sisters. You matter a great deal to God because his son died for you. And that means that your life has eternal value. Let's go to the Lord and his table. Pastor John.